Hey, Jay, what have the Shi'ar been up to lately anyway? Ah, uh, rebuilding post-Vulcan, mostly. Is Lalandra back in charge? Miles, Lalandra's super dead. Gladiator's imperator these days. Oh, he's not Shi'ar, though, is he? No, he's Stranchen. Stranchen? What's their deal? Largely moot, since there are like three of them left, and they're all closely related, so I don't really see a lot of future for that species. That's unfortunate. Right? So, Gladiator killed Lalandra and took over the Empire. What? No, no, no. He assumed power after a massive War of Succession. There was a whole crossover event, dude. It was called War of Kings. Then who did kill Lalandra? Was it Cassandra Nova? I sort of remember that. No, Lalandra had tried to kill Xavier thinking that he was still possessed by Cassandra Nova, not the other way around. Okay, well, that makes more sense. Then who killed Lalandra? Darkhawk. The 90s dude? Sorta. See, the amulet that granted him his powers and fancy armor turned out to be a kind of body swap thing that made him vulnerable to an ancient Shi'ar order called the Brotherhood of Raptors who figured they'd use him to preserve the Empire by assassinating its only reasonably competent leader. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 120 of J and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So here we are on this gloriously sunny day. Jay, how's it going? Well, um, I'm not in New York, which is weird. And we're recording again, which also feels kind of weird, because I've actually had two weeks off, which is sort of unprecedented. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I didn't have a break. So in the words of Angela Orozco from Silent Hill 2, for me, it's always like this. Deep cut, yeah! Forget it, Miles, it's Silent Hill. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Today, we are back on Excalibur. We are looking at the last four issues before we finally get to dive into the cross-time caper. And you know what that means? What's that mean? Two Nazi weeks in a row. It does, yeah. I realized that when I was writing the next time on thing at the very end of last episode. Like, in New Mutants Forever, they fight Nazis. It's Nazi Red Skull. In this Excalibur arc, they also fight Nazis. It's Nazi Excalibur. This is also, I believe, our direct follow-up to Inferno. We haven't really seen Excalibur since then. One of our listeners pointed out, I don't remember if it was on the blog or in a tweet, that we finished Inferno and like the next half a dozen issues were all Inferno follow-ups, so we in fact did not fully get away from Inferno. We're never going to fully get away from Inferno. This is how we live now. Oh yeah, uh, that reminds me, listeners, we did decide that once we finish the Inferno follow-up, we're just going to start the Inferno lead-in again and just cycle forever. It's just going to be build up to Inferno, Inferno, lead out from Inferno, over and over. I do like the idea that pretending that everything subsequent in continuity is the lead-up to Inferno, <laughs> just to another Inferno, but it never quite pays off. Oh man, it'd be like the Mutant Wars that builds up and builds up and never actually happens. Or the promise of the 90s in general. Oh, the 90s. The dot-com boom. <laughs> the extreme dot-com boom. Now I'm just imagining, like, Adam X, the extreme, starting, like, a startup that gets destroyed when the tech bubble bursts in Seattle or whatever. It definitely has something to do with skateboarding. It does. I'm pretty sure cargo shorts work into both of those identities, so, you know, it wouldn't be too much of a leap. You know, I will go to the mat for cargo shorts. They get a lot of shit, especially on the internet, but they're really comfortable and you can put a lot of things in them. I'm wearing cargo shorts right now, so I really have no ground to stand on. It's true, you are. So anyway, cargo shorts aside, uh, yes, this is Excalibur's follow-up to Inferno, and in some ways, it's the follow-up that most directly addresses some of the important fallout from it, simply because there have been a lot of plot threads waiting to uh, be followed up on for a long time, as far as the members of Excalibur who are former X-Men. 
Let's take a quick glance back to the status quo, because we haven't actually checked in with Excalibur in a really long time. So Inferno happened. You guys remember that? Inferno, the thing we spent like 400 episodes on? That happened. Wait, could you recap that quickly? Because I don't really remember. Let's just do an Inferno recap episode, I think. And then we can do an episode recapping that one? Right, you get real meta. Okay, no, let's not do that. So in the Excalibur part of Inferno, um, it was sort of more adjacent to Inferno than Inferno proper, like Excalibur was kind of on the edges of it. It started when Phoenix, Rachel Summers, the alternate timeline daughter of Scott Summers and Jean Grey from the Days of Future Past universe, ruined Kitty Pride's favorite sweater. Uh, yes, and specifically flew off to New York because she heard the psychic cries of her alternate, alternate universe, baby brother, Nathan Christopher Charles Dayspring Ascani, Tuesday, Thursday, dollar bill, Euro, Summers. Question, are they actually technically related? Because well, the thing is, like, if Rachel is the product of Parthogenesis from just the Phoenix Force specifically, if she's the kid of the Phoenix Force, well, I guess Madeline sort of had a fragment of the Phoenix Force, so maybe they're like fragmentary alternate universe partial siblings? I think so, and I, I will say that Children of the Phoenix would be a really great, like, fantasy metal album name. Oh, I was thinking band name in general. I mean, that could work too, you know. Also, uh, possibly the title of a novel with the kind of cover that looks like something you'd have airbrushed on the side of a van, or check out from the library because it looked like it was a lot pornier than it actually turns out to be. <laughs> yup. If I ever had more money than I knew what to do with, and I couldn't spend it on things that actually mattered, um, then I would totally get one of those vans. It would have, like, whales and wizards and dragons, and it would be amazing. Would it have, like, a shitty mattress in the back? I mean, it seems like that would be handy. I feel like if you've got a van with wizards on it, you're really just one step away from that anyway. Because nothing says bone town like sorcery. I mean, this is canonically established in context of Iceman with the wizard beard. I guess that's true. I mean, he specifically comments that the ladies love it, I assume because he is aware that his, you know, prior timeline self is still aggressively closeted. So I assume that Iceman's ice wizardiness gets him all of the action. I'll buy that. Wizards uh, are a thing. They are. But we very much digress. So... Okay, so our producer Kyle actually just cut in uh, aghast at the fact that we'd just been talking about wizards, and Jay had not brought up their new favorite person. Okay, okay, this is the most important piece of factual information you will ever learn. If you are ever in trouble, if you are ever in a crisis, if you are ever attacked by a bear, this is the thing that will save you. I learned yesterday that the guy who did Kurt Russell's stunts in Escape from New York is named Dick Warlock. That's pretty much the greatest thing of all the things. Yeah, it's objectively the best name of all time. Like, no matter how you parse it, it's amazing. <laughs> so the like, more you know, if you get nothing else from this episode where we're going to talk about, like, Nazis and alternate dimensions, then you have learned about Dick Warlock. Like, name, slightly risque private detective, Pathfinder prestige class. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. Whatever. Like, there's no wrong way to be Dick Warlock. Uh, and he's a real person. It, <laughs> so, which means one of two things, which is that either that's his real name, his parents named him Richard, and he chose to go by Dick with the last name Warlock, or he adopted it as a stage name on purpose, and either way, that man is a stone-cold badass, and I love him. He has one of those vans, right? I'm assuming. Dude, he doesn't need one of those vans. He is the human embodiment of one of those vans. He is the motherfucking Snake Pliskin stunt double, and his name is Dick Warlock. That's got built-in van cred? Yes. Yes, <laughs> okay. it does. I'm not going to argue with that. He is the human equivalent of a really badass van with wizards and possibly dolphins airbrushed on the side. Like the dolphins jumping over the wizards as part of a big space scape and like the wizards standing in the middle with lightning crackling out. That's Dick Warlock's car equivalent. I'm fully sold. This episode has taken a turn, and we're not very far into it at all. You know, if there's any X-book 
that Dick Warlock could join on to and be a good fit for the cast, it would probably be Excalibur, which again is half a step from a sex farce and definitely has more than its share of wizards. Okay, so honorary sixth member of Excalibur from now on, Dick Warlock. He doesn't get talked about very much, but he's totally there. Can we do the thing like, you know how Teen Titans Wasteland does what Aqualad is definitely probably up to? Mm -hmm. Can we do that with Dick Warlock when we do Excalibur episodes? I think that might be a little less relevant than the Aquaman thing is to their show. Miles, Dick Warlock is always relevant. Okay, well, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. So anyway, Excalibur, right? Can we talk about Excalibur? Excalibur? And Dick Warlock. Excalibur and Dick Warlock. So, Inferno happened. During this, aside from the Rachel Summers thing that happened that initiated the whole event, Megan, who's been having trouble controlling her physical form because she keeps turning into, like, whatever the people around her want to see, she ended up becoming the Goblin Princess, sort of like the Goblin Queen, but with more Bride of Frankenstein hair and enslaving Captain Britain. You know what would have been a better thing to become? Yes. Yeah. Megan was defeated by Kitty Pride, who was wielding the soul sword that appeared in her hand when Lyanna Rasputin got de-aged, so that was a thing also. You know who else could have defeated Megan? Yes. Yeah. And so what's weird about the Inferno events in Excalibur is that the reason that Excalibur came to New York, Rachel Summers finding her little brother, doesn't actually happen. They fight some demons, they deal with the fact that Megan and Brian are possessed, and that's fine, but the entire impetus, no follow-up. Yeah, Rachel gets body-swapped with a mannequin for most of that. It's pretty strange. And almost marries a goblin. And so, where we begin right now, Excalibur is in New York, and they're just sort of hanging out and trying to figure out what to do. Now, we do have a couple other plot threads going on. We've been introduced recently to the Weird Happenings Organization, also known as WHO, and they are led by Brigadier Alisande Stewart, and uh, working also there is Alisande Stewart's twin brother, Dr. Alistair Stewart. Who are mutually one big Doctor Who reference. As is the whole name that Weird Happenings Organization uh, acronyms to. They're twins, so the reference got split between them. Now, the third thing that's been going on in the background that's going to play in right here and going forward is that Captain Britain's ex-girlfriend, Courtney Ross, who mostly showed up in the Red Jammies era and also briefly in Excalibur, She's been killed and secretly replaced by this other fascist dimensional doppelganger named Satire 9. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it's very similar to Saturn 9, yet another person who is the same person across dimensions. Speaking of interdimensional fascists, how often do you get to use that sentence? I mean, it's Excalibur, so actually pretty regularly. I, but I think it's most appropriate right here and right now. So what Weird Happenings organization is currently investigating, and we're going to get back to this later in this very episode is a train that has swapped out with one from their dimension. Now, their normal 616, Moira McTaggart and Callisto, were on a trip. The train they were on was replaced with their equivalents from a universe where the Nazis won World War II. And so there is the really remarkably attired, I believe, Minister of Genetics. Reich Minister Reich of Genetics. Minister of Genetics, Moira McTaggart and her bodyguard, Callisto who are now running around the 616 and Weird Happenings organization is trying to figure out how they got there, what to do with them, and how to get the originals back. And I do love that whenever the Weird Happenings organization shows up, it is to deal with a legitimately Doctor Who-esque plot thread. Right, so we've got not only crypto-Nazi Satire 9 running around the 616, but also actual Nazi Mara McTaggart and Callisto. So in a multiverse with an infinite number of dimensions, apparently a disturbing number of them are fascist. From a fairly pessimistic angle, that seems relatively probable? Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, it's an election year, so my ebbing and flowing esteem of humanity is probably at its, like, four-year low. Yeah, well, there is that, I suppose. 
But anyway, so that's the background, the tableau, if you will, which I will, that we have present as we go into Excalibur number eight, with Excalibur still in New York. In fact, this is called Excalibur's New York Adventure, which for some reason charms the hell out of me that it's just such a prosaic title. You know who's not in New York? Uh, Alan Davis. Dick Warlock, because he escaped. God damn it. Anyway, this issue Alan Davis is not present for because this dude named Ron Lim is doing guest pencils. And Ron Lim is basically doing his best Alan Davis and doing a fairly good job at it. Yeah, it's pretty transparent. Like, if I hadn't read the credits page, if I wasn't paying too much attention, I don't know that I would have noticed. To be fair, I'm also not a terribly artistically inclined person. That's something I've really had to learn over the course of doing the podcast. But yeah, it's a nice transparent transition. And as with many days in Brian Braddock's life, this first day in New York post-Inferno begins with him waking up alone and deeply confused. Yeah, poor Brian. At least he's got pants for now. Uh, yes, he does. And for now. In fact, the first page is him in pajamas just charging at the camera, freaking out, being enraged and also worried. And this is Brian. He's so full of emotions. He's so full of feelings. So I like to pretend that Brian doesn't have object permanence. <laughs> that he wakes up and Megan's not there and he's just convinced that she's, you know, never existed. That she's gone forever. So he's like a dog, yeah. you know? And then he gets really excited, but also kind of upset when she gets back. And sometimes he gets confused and revenge pees and all stuff. And <laughs> I really hope Brian Braddock doesn't revenge pee. I can I just mean, see like Merlin and he... Roma like, oh, God, why did we give this guy powers? Why? <laughs> I assume that they think through that pretty regularly. Anyway, we've seen them have that conversation. But yeah, what's going on is that Brian's woken up in the hotel that they're staying in in New York after all their Inferno adventures. And everybody's gone. The whole rest of the team is gone. Fortunately. Most of the team has heeded the advice of J. Walter Weatherman and left him notes. So Kitty has gone back to the Xavier School to pick up some of her stuff, or, well, the ruins of the Xavier School, as she will soon discover. Nightcrawler has headed off to steal the Blackbird that they technically own because it's easier than getting it the legitimate way. And Rachel has headed off to pull a Superman Returns and watch her little brother through the window of ship. Oh, man. You know, I will stand up for that movie. Everybody hates it. I really enjoyed it. Really humanized Superman. It worked for me. There are aspects of it that I really dig. I don't think it's really cohesive as a whole, but I definitely, definitely appreciate some of the narrative angles and some of the directions the story took. Well, there you go. Now, the person who has not left a note is Megan. Now, Captain Britton posits that that may be because Megan is mostly illiterate and she's too embarrassed to attempt to leave a note. Yeah, we've established that before and that she's especially sensitive about it with regards to Brian. But he's really worried about her, so he goes to fly off to find her. Now, we should point out, Brian's costume was destroyed during Inferno, so he's currently wearing basically gym clothes that barely fit around his muscly, muscly bulk that the hotel lent him. He's wearing a warm-up suit, which is an important point of disambiguation because he's going to be dressed in other gym clothes later in plot-relevant ways. I think it's kind of wacky that he's this worried about Megan because she's objectively probably the member of Excalibur best equipped to take care of herself in the wild. Well, at the same time, though, with all the identity issues that she has in general and has especially had lately, and given the trauma she went through during Inferno, I think I'd be worried, too. It's not that she's not capable. It's just that she's deeply troubled at the moment. Yeah, that's fair. But Brian also. Well, OK, Brian also has his share of problems. No question there. Although he's been off the juice for a while. So that's good. Again, object permanence. I assume <laughs> that there's a point like if she's gone for too long, he's worried she'll just stop existing. Oh, man. I wonder if she worries about the same thing, honestly. Oh, Because, like I said, trauma. No, no, no. Megan is used to following long-running serials. She is aware that things return week after week. Okay, well, that's good. Good point. Like, she is far more aware of narrative conventions, I would say, than anyone else in Excalibur would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she can go hang out with Deadpool and with uh, Sarah from Angela, Queen of Hell. And Abed. And also Abed. Oh, man, that would be a great team-up title. 
God, it really would. Like all of them just watching TV together, having like really serious conversations and maybe sometimes playing D&D. I feel like this could be a really good webcomic. Or just sketch series. Yeah. So Brian flies off to find Megan and we do get a nice little cameo as we so often do in Claremont books of Lois Lane and Clark Kent watching. Clark is really impressed with this flying dude. And I love Lois's line here. Clark, be real. If you've seen one hyperthyroid egomaniacal exhibitionist in skin tights, you've seen them all. And so basically from here, we just follow Brian's like kind of adventure out in New York City as he gets increasingly frustrated with dealing with this place that is very much not England. You know what I appreciate about Excalibur? What's that? So you know how it's a thing in X-Men that Rogue ends up naked all the damn time? It does happen a lot. Our listeners have taken many drinks because of that. Well, in Excalibur, the character who's persistently tougher than their costumes is in fact Captain Britain. It's true, his costume does get shredded with relatively high degree of frequency. So in Excalibur, those of you who are playing along at home or drinking along at home will want to switch over to, you know, Brian being the name that you look at for, although he's not the only person who's going to lose his pants in this storyline. Yeah, and in fact, speaking of losing pants and Brian, that's one of the first things that happens because there's a family crossing the street about to be run down by a robbery getaway car. So Brian stops it and his clothes get shredded, which leads to the great line. Mom, he's got no pants. <laughs> children get excited about everything. They really do. But also children have tapped into the fundamental universal truth that butts are hilarious. I'm not going to argue with that. And so, yes, he tries to go off and fly away and he can't. Yeah, there's a great moment of him just standing there with his arms extended. So stuck on the ground, he is directed to a nearby gym store, fitness clothes store, because I guess that's where superheroes get their stuff in New York. We've already seen the exterminators do it. They have very little that will fit him. So he is at this point running around in a super tight tank top and teeny little shorts that would do Forge proud. Now, as far as the not being able to fly, this is something that we've seen a little bit since Excalibur came to New York. Brian's powers and also Megan's to a degree have been failing them. They're just not triggering when they're supposed to. Happens to everyone sometimes, Brian. It's true. It's true. Uh, one and however many superheroes. And so Brian is getting more and more exasperated as he deals with all of these minor indignities. Brian Braddock, thy name is Minor Indignities. But he continues. And I mean, there's this great montage of him like dealing with yelling New Yorkers, cabbies being creepy. He's so frustrated. Are the cabbies being creepy or just upset because he can't pay them because his wallet immediately gets stolen? You know, that would actually be an entirely reasonable reason to be upset. Yeah, and he tries to stop a cop, but it's insinuated that he tells her something along the lines of, I'm looking for a woman, so she immediately pulls him out and frisks him for solicitation. So he tries to prove that, no, no, ma'am, I am a superhero. Check this out. I'm going to lift this car. Nope. And he can't. He's just sitting there straining and straining until everyone's like, oh, whatever, dude. This is just embarrassing and walks away. And when he finally does, there's just one person left to see who is specifically not the cop in question. So, I mean, I'm not a schadenfreude kind of guy. That kind of humor makes me uncomfortable often. But it always works with Captain Britain because he's just so heroic and so dignified and so much of kind of a pretentious dick sometimes. Yeah, we talked about this, I think, with Captain Britain. When you have a functionally omnipotent character, the best way to humanize them is to have them take pratfalls. You know, Superman kind of lampshades this by doing it himself as Clark Kent. And with Brian, Claremont and Davis, or in this case, Claremont and Lim, take up the reins admirably. So where is Megan during all of this? Megan is... On Coney Island, sitting and crying under a dock. So I've never been to Coney Island, but it always makes me think of both the Warriors and also that one Godspeed You Black Emperor song where the guy talks about it at the beginning. Excalibur, come out and play. The Warriors was such a weird, great movie. I didn't see that for the first time until a few years ago. And it's just all a bunch of super teams, except they're teenage gangs, but they're all themed and it's great. 
Has anyone ever done an explicit superhero comic homage to the Warriors? Someone has to have. I'm sure someone has. Well, the come out and play line is like everywhere. So well, yeah, that but least. but explicitly done a sort of odyssey through New York fighting other villains and super teams. I bet there's been a Spider-Man story or something. I would assume so. I'm sure it's out there. Listeners, if you know of any, let us know. But regardless, yeah, so she's really messed up because, like we were saying before, she's been through some shit. Like, she was already questioning whether she even really has an identity. And so seeing that the Inferno could shape her in such an immediate and terrible way without her really having any say in the matter, that's bugging the hell out of her. That's really taking those insecurities and amping them up. She's found by a group of young women who I assume because it's Coney Island and again, like you, my main context is the Warriors are a girl gang on their day off. I think it stands to reason. Right. They assume that what's going on is that there's this woman who's sitting and sobbing with no shoes under a dock that obviously like she has been beaten and or kicked out by her boyfriend. They immediately adopt her. And what we see is Megan going through a series of different interactions and groups of people and relationships and sort of moving fluidly between them and changing physically to match whoever she's with, both physically and kind of personality wise. During this, she's, you know, questioning whether this is really the right thing to do, thinking to herself at one point. What's so wrong about doing what they want? But suppose I want something different. Selfish cow, is that how you repay their generosity? By thinking of yourself? Oh, Megan. And this is so much a theme in her relationship with Captain Britain, too. The idea that if someone is good to you, you have to be completely self-effacing in your relationship with them. Yeah, and I'm really glad that the book is just exploring this head-on because it's an incredibly unhealthy relationship. And there's nothing wrong with depicting unhealthy relationships as long as you kind of analyze them instead of just having them be the default and everyone being okay with that. Yeah, I really like that Megan and Brian are never idealized. Like, they're portrayed as having kind of a fairy tale romance, but they're also very much an exploration of where the fairy tale leaves off and reality kicks in. And so Brian eventually does find Megan when she's hanging out with a group of black basketball players and is kicking ass playing basketball herself. Yeah, she steps in for an injured player and leads her team to a rousing, rousing victory. And that's the form that she actually stops in when she's with Brian. She doesn't revert back to her blonde form. She stays in the form that she had in the basketball game. And she eventually realizes that it's because that's the form in which she went and did something because she thought it would be fun and used her own skills and just succeeded at it as herself, not by fitting in, but by actually doing something. So I want to talk a little about Megan's forms, because over the course of this issue, she changes appearance to match the people she's around. And that also means that she changes ethnicity. She changes like visible race a number of times. I don't know. Often when that's done in comics, it can be super uncomfortable. Like you remember that time the Beyonder tried to be black? I was thinking about the Lois Lane, I am curious, black issue of Superman. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing I like about this is that Megan doesn't specifically go, I am going to be like these people to pass as one of them and find out what they're like. It's literally just her adapting and blending in chameleon like with anyone she's with. It doesn't try to be an anthropologist on Mars thing. It's just her moving through and interacting with different groups of people. Also, those groups aren't homogenous in the way that, you know, in the Superman story, for instance, they are. Honestly, I went into this issue remembering bits and pieces of it very skeptically and was really relieved by the way it actually played out. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's handled in a really not uncomfortable way. The other thing I want to talk about with this arc is that it's a really, really great metaphor for agency with regards to female characters. Megan, in her early forms in the, the first few groups of people she's with, the group of women who initially find her, a guy who she ends up you know, going dancing with and scaring off when he tries to kiss her, she's defined by what they want or what they are and just by reflecting them, which tends to be the role of women in especially team stories and superhero comics, but mm -hmm. a lot of the time in narratives in more male character focused narratives. And the point where 
she sort of regains power is when she does something, when she acts on her own, when she takes up agency and when she does something that's about her. And what I really love is that's highlighted after Captain Burton does find her and she gets into the taxi with him to go home. He mentions when they get there that he doesn't have any money because that was in his other pants that got destroyed. And so she happily offers to pay with the winnings from the basketball game. You are incorrect about where his money went. It was actually stolen along with his wallet. Um, oh, was that As soon as he changed into the teeny tiny gym shorts, he got pickpocketed. Yeah, that's a nice little highlighting of that increased agency. And also, I mean, in this sort of reversal of traditional gender roles and the frustration that Captain Britain feels because of it, like, it's very satisfying. It's very cathartic. Captain Britain's frustration is often very satisfying. It totally is. So, yeah, those are Captain Britain and Megan. So what's up with our former X-Men in this issue? Well, Kitty heads back to the Xavier School, where she finds the New Mutants hanging out in and trying to clean up some of the wreckage. Because the Xavier School was, of course, destroyed by the fight with Mr. Sinister in the X-Men X-Factor part of Inferno. And Kitty, being Kitty, she immediately picks a fight with them. Remember, she has not encountered this team since her two best friends have basically died. One literally, and one effectively. And I love the way this plays out. So, for instance, Cannonball says, You're talking like this is our fault. Maybe not this cannonball, but there's more than enough else for you to answer for. Magneto was headmaster. Why couldn't you have done what he told you? What made you figure you kids could pretend to be the X-Men? Back off, girl. Danny and I are older than you. Well, you sure didn't act like it. You're the leaders, Guthrie. You're supposed to know better. And Sunspot jumps in. It's only a house, for heaven's sake. It can be rebuilt. Can Doug Ramsey be resurrected, Sunspot? And that's what it comes down to. That's what she's angry about. That's what she's crushed because of, is that she's lost Doug. She's lost Ilyana. Those were the two members of the New Mutants she was closest to and two of the people in the world that she was closest to. The answer to her question is, of course, yes, because it's a superhero comic, but it's going to be a really, really long time and there's going to be a really tragic red herring between now and then. I love that her pain is just so real and raw. Like, I love that we are addressing the fallout of these things that have occurred. You know what I love? I love that she's a total unjustified asshole. That sounds sarcastic, but here's the thing. I think a lot of people who came into X-Men via the cartoon came into an era where Kitty Pride was sort of being written as a paragon figure, especially through Jubilee's perspective, which you saw a lot more of at that point, where, you know, she was the perfect older sibling to the flawed, much more relatable new teenage female protagonist. And I think it's easy to overlook the fact that Kitty, when she started out, she was impetuous. She was a character whose defining trait for a long time was her temper. Like, she was really angry. She was really petty and vicious a lot of the time. And she was really relatable in those ways. And that's a version and a characteristic that I really appreciate and that I really love seeing play out here, especially, you know, in a situation where it's obviously really profoundly unfair. Like, the extent to which her response to hurt is to lash out. And also how strong her sense of injustice is during this era and how that combination is one of her greatest strengths as a superhero, but one of her greatest weaknesses as a person is something I never really get tired of. And we see that on full display here as she lashes out most of all at Wolfsbane, who, of course, you know, did her best to protect Ilyana, to redeem Ilyana, and who Doug Ramsey died to protect. So Rain is just crushed by this. And it's not until Ilyana, young, de-aged, Russian-speaking Ilyana, calls Kitty on her bullshit that Kitty realizes what she's doing. Stop it, stop it, stop it! How could you hurt her so? I'm better now because of her. I'm myself again. You used to tell me stories. I thought you were my special bestest friend, but you're not. And Kitty just collapses, comforted by Mirage, who offers to, you know, temporarily create simulacra of teenage Ilyana and living Doug. 
which is enough to sort of, in combination with, you know, six-year-old Ilyana's rant, to kind of snap Kitty out of it. And they offer to let Kitty stay, and she basically says, no, I like you guys, but my team was the X-Men. They're dead now. My main tie to your team was Ilyana. She's not really the person who I knew. So I'm going to you know, head back to England for merry time hopping adventures with my new bros. So here's something that really bugs me about this. Like, I love this scene as long as I don't think about this fact. The New Mutants know that at least one of the X-Men, Colossus, you know, Kitty's ex-boyfriend, is totally alive because they saw Colossus in Inferno. To be fair, there's a lot going on and she's been yelling at them. I bet after she leaves, they're like, oh, shit, we should have told her. And then one of them's like, serves her right. Probably Cannon, Sunspot. Right. And Cannonball's like, oh, don't be an asshole about it. We'll call her later. But then they forget because, you know, they're off In fighting. Asgard. Well, no, I was going to say hanging out with Namor, but. Oh, right. That is what they do next. Yeah. So that's Kitty. And I really do enjoy that we get that closure because honestly, it's been a long time coming. We see her mourning Doug Ramsey at the beginning of Excalibur. But this is the first time she's really confronted his teammates about what happened. And seeing her see Ilyana in the immediate aftermath of her fall, of her sacrifice, also works really well for me. So Kurt, meanwhile, has teleported over to the Skunkworks of Lockheed Martin headquarters. And he is there to kidnap back the X-Men's plane, which is a modified uh, Blackbird SR-71, sort of. And there's this bit where a lot of the Skunk Works, which is real place, by the way, technicians are talking about how amazing the X-Men's version of the Blackbird is. And they're going into like all of this deep historical detail about how the model was created and the history of the company because it's Chris Claremont and he loves that shit and I love him for it. Okay, so I love this shit, too, because aviation history is awesome and fascinating and... um. A couple things. First of all, last time we talked about this, a listener pointed us to an article that someone at Lockheed Martin actually wrote about the difference between their planes and the X-Men's planes, mostly as portrayed in various movies, mm -hmm. which is a lot of fun. Second, yeah, the wild unfeasibility of using a Blackbird for what the X-Men actually use it for is amazing. Like, first of all, a Blackbird that seats two people was a significantly later model, like as opposed to one pilot. Mm -hmm. Um the extent to which things like fuel ratio are calculated, you could not stick six people in a Blackbird. And weren't you saying that it costs some ridiculous amount of money to actually run a Blackbird? Oh, yeah. It's something like $200,000 per hour of flight. I mean, I know the X-Men have a lot of money, but damn. It requires a really large ground crew. Part of the way it works and part of the materials mean that when it's on the ground, it's continually leaking fuel. And I mean, it's great. It still holds the airspeed record, which is something like Mach 3. Wow. It's, yeah, really high. Like, the last one is now in the Air and Space Museum. They've been decommissioned largely because of the operating cost. And I think that one I read today made the transcontinental flight from California to Washington in a little over an hour. I can see why Kurt wants to get a Blackbird then, because goddamn. They're great, right? And you don't have to make mid-Atlantic pit stops on, you know, trawlers. <laughs> yeah. And so he teleports away with it, mentioning that even though he teleported there, he's kind of out of juice, that ever since the Mutant Massacre, he just hasn't been that strong teleportation-wise. Well, he teleports into it and flies away with it. <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. It's an important distinction there. Now, Rachel Summers heads over to ship X-Factor's, you know, floating, sentient, celestial fortress, and watches Jean Grey talk to Nathan Christopher. She's just sort of outside watching them through the window. Well, Rachel herself has a telepathic conversation with Nathan Christopher that somehow Jean doesn't pick up on, which sort of surprised me since Jean has gotten her telepathy back and has a fairly strong telepathic rapport with the kid. Well, the impression I always got was that Rachel and Nathan Christopher always had an even stronger bond. I mean, Rachel met the kid right as he was born. Rachel was there when Madeline, you know, revealed that she was pregnant in the first place. She's also got, you know, raw Phoenix Force going for her, so... 
Yeah. There is that. It's really adorable just seeing Rachel telepathically talk to Nathan Christopher and just the way they connect. I mean, at one point she says, wugga wugga to you too, baby bro. Like, it's adorable, even though it's also kind of weird and creepy and Jean's oblivious. And Jean remains oblivious because we've seen Rachel have a lot of trouble disclosing her relationship to her alternate universe parents. I think she and Cyclops still actually haven't explicitly talked about it, although it's implied that he's just sort of figured it out on his own by now. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say in this case, it's maybe not a bad move considering how Jean eventually reacts when she does find out, which is not well. Jean does not do well with things that imply destiny in any way. And a future alternate universe grown kid is a pretty heavy end of where you're headed. And Rachel explicitly thinks to Nathan Christopher that this might be too much for Jean, given everything that's happened recently. And, you know, maybe not the worst point. That said, I really wanted Rachel and Jean to meet up at this point. I get why they didn't, but that's just, I don't know, it would have made me happy. You know, on one hand, it might be too much. On the other hand, given everything that Jean's been through, it might be the equivalent of, like, you know, the house burned down and... We all lost our jobs, and it turns out Grandma's secretly a Nazi. And also, by the way, I'm gay. <laughs> sort of downplayed in the presence of all the other big events occurring. Right. I mean, you have a clone who, the love of your life, married, then abandoned, who had a kid, and turned super evil, and tried to kill you, and you had to fight in her mind, and then absorb her, along with the Phoenix Force, which in your form and name committed atrocities that you now personally remember. Oh yeah, and future alternate universe daughter. Eventful day. Right? And so, yeah, that's our sort of Inferno follow-up issue right here, and I'm really glad Claremont took the time to do it, because it gets us to a nice reset point where Excalibur can just be a team and do Excalibur stuff, instead of dealing with all these unresolved plot threads and emotional connections. This brings us to Excalibur number nine, where Excalibur heads back to business as usual, and that business as usual starts with the cover. And as is so often the case in this era, the cover is amazing. I love Alan Davis's Excalibur cover so much. Yeah, every time we come to one of these, I think this is one of my favorite covers. And I think what it comes down to is that all of Alan Davis's covers are my favorites. This one is one specifically that I would absolutely fucking love a statue of. Right, because it's this scene in a museum where there's a pedestal that says Excalibur, and most of the team is on it sort of unconscious and tangled up. And there's one next to it that says Captain Britain, and it's Brian awkwardly changing into the old Red Jammies Captain Britain costume that he swiped off of the mannequin that was previously on it. Yeah, and it's way too small for him, and the whole scene is being observed by a family of lizard people. I feel like, and the whole scene is being observed by a family of lizard people is something you could add on to almost any Excalibur event, and people would just go, yeah, oh, okay, I believe it. I mean, you can add it on to a summary of literally anything and improve it. Uh, that's true, yes, but with Excalibur, it always so, fits. So, you know, a plucky orphan finds himself, you know, financed by an unknown benefactor and also held in the thrall of an old lady living in a wedding dress in a broken down mansion with whose ward he falls in love. Also, the whole thing is observed by a family of lizard people. A middle-aged man in Germany ponders his place in life and when he's accused of a crime he didn't commit by a faceless bureaucracy and eventually condemned and the whole thing is observed by a family of lizard people. And so forth. And so forth. So the issue itself follows up, of course, on one of the remaining dangling plot threads from previous issues, which is that whole Nazi train Moira McTaggart thing that just showed up out of nowhere due to, it is implied, the robot head who opens lots of portals, Widget. Oh yeah, okay, so let's go back a little bit and give some Widget background. This is a thing that we saw Tweedledope find and sort of try to wake up and cobble together and also feed a can of beans too. When it did, it promptly teleported a kid named Colin into another universe sent a guy wearing a colander on his head to Satire 9, who was able to use the same means to come back and replace Courtney Ross, and generally express its glee at all of these actions. 
Right. Widget is immensely charming because Widget is just sort of an impromptu agent of chaos who just opens random portals whenever people mention anything that seems like it could be portal related. Widget is happy to be here. Now, Widget is not the only wild card here. We find out very quickly that Nazi Maura McTaggart and Callisto are not the only parallel Excalibur members who've made their way into the 616 as Lockheed excitedly prepares to welcome back Kitty Pride, who has arrived to surprise him, only to find that the Kitty who has come for him is very, very different than the one he's used to. Right, and he is seemingly killed, maybe just knocked out, by somebody who at first glance looks like Kitty Pride, but is an emaciated, bald young woman with a Star of David tattooed onto her forehead, and she's translucent, and basically this is where we learn, oh, there's some really not okay stuff going on here. And this is where we meet the full Nazi Excalibur. Called the Lightning Squad. Right, we've got Hauptmann England. So the ones of these guys in official-looking uniforms wear purple and green, which is how you can tell this is evil Excalibur, because they wear two secondary colors. Was it Comics Alliance or CBR that did that whole like superhero color theory series a while back? I don't remember. It's come up in a number of places. Well, that was really good, and people should read it. It's interesting stuff, but yeah, no, it's, that's sort of a joke. So Hauptmann England, for example, has a uniform very much like Captain Britain structurally, but with a swastika rather than the British flag. And I do love the designs of these characters, because they're all very... Well, for lack of a better word, uniform. They're very precise and put together. Yeah, they're much more military looking than Excalibur in general, even the ones who have individual undifferentiated uniforms. Like Nightcrawler still has very much his own costume, complete with a pair of rakish sunglasses. And his looks much more like a military dress uniform. It's a lot gaudier. Kitty is basically wearing her 616 costume, but she herself is significantly physically transformed. So, yes, we now have the Lightning Squad, in addition to Nazi Moira and Callisto and a Nazi train in Earth-616. However, our heroes are entirely unaware of this because they are training in the still-intact technological part of the Undermansion Grounds. What they're doing specifically is trying to figure out the extent to which Captain Britain's powers have degraded. So Kitty's operating some equipment and testing him, having him lift a bunch of weight in what it turns out is not the danger room. It's just next door to it. And he's not doing so hot. He can't lift as much as he should be able to. His reflexes are slower and he can't fly at all. Megan, meanwhile, isn't faring much better. She is basically unconsciously a chameleon. She is taking on the form of whoever she is near without even thinking about it, which is jarring when it happens with Kurt and Kitty and catastrophic when it happens with Phoenix because she's not only changing shape, She's adapting to match the people she's shifting into so closely that, for instance, Rachel's psychic defenses don't recognize her as not Rachel. And actually, her merging with Rachel and the sort of weird muddling of their psyches because of the nature of Megan's powers is going to become a running motif and a running issue for Excalibur. And there's actually this great series of panels where Kitty and Kurt each walk up to Megan, who's just watching Brian train. She shifts without realizing it. And below, there's this long string of Bam, crunch, ow, yeah, why? Sound effects as Brian just, you know, is getting beaten up by the machinery. Well, he's getting sprayed with paint mostly at that point, but yeah. So they don't have too much longer to focus on these because they get a call from good old Inspector Di Thomas, everyone's favorite incredibly curmudgeonly British police inspector dude, and he calls them to the Tower of London. Good thing they have a blackbird. Now, before they get there, though, we get a longer introduction to one of my very, very favorite Excalibur supporting characters, the... Indomitable, lovely, and persistently goofy Alistair Stewart. Yeah, he's talking to Di Thomas about just what's going on, and they're trying to figure out, you know, how could this be a thing? And I love Alistair's quote here. Well, Alistair's secondhand quote, because he's in fact quoting Sherlock Holmes. When all other possibilities are investigated and discarded, whatever remains, however improbable, 
must be the truth. As he gestures with the banana that he's eating. Yeah, this is an example of one of the fundamental rules of comedy, which is that if you want to make a character seem less serious, just give them a banana. Mm -hmm. It works out pretty well. There's actually an article from Magic the Gathering at some point talking about flavor text and flavor text writing. And I remember this specific instance because uh, they're talking about a game they play called Not Funny, Funny, Very Funny, where they'll choose a category of things and then come up with, you know, Not Funny, Funny, Very Funny. So fruits and vegetables, the examples they give, I don't remember what the Not Funny example is, but funny is banana and very funny is rutabaga. I'll buy that. Rutabagas are inherently funny. With the qualifier that nothing will ever top, sorry, I burned down your village, here's some gold. Yes. Unfortunately for Alistair Stewart and his banana... Lightning Squad chooses this moment to attack the tower, led by evil Brian Braddock, who uses good Brian Braddock's credentials to get in. You'd think that they'd have protocols for this, given that it's the second time that an evil alternate universe Captain Britain has basically done the exact same thing. Right. But they don't. And the Weird Happenings organization and the members of Excalibur, when they show up, are very quickly taken out by Lightning Squad, who neutralizes them with very little trouble and manages to take Alice and Stewart hostage. Yeah, and I especially want to talk about the confrontation between the two Kitty Prides, because our Kitty, before the attack occurs, is sort of bemoaning being a living ghost by default. Because remember, she's still stuck in a phased state most of the time. And at that point, the other Kitty Pride, this ghostly one from Lightning Squad, thinks aloud to her, Better by far than being a dead one. And just takes Kitty out instantly. And we'll go into this more later, but the Lightning Squad version of Kitty Pride is one of the saddest things in the Marvel Universe, in my opinion. So Lightning Squad is gloating, talking about how great they are, how terrible the non-fascist Earth-616 is, when they are confronted by the one member of Excalibur who has not shown up, that being Captain Britain wearing a way-too-tight version of his old Red Jammies-era costume. And this, for me, is like peak Captain Britain. This is how you do a good Captain Britain scene. You have him be heroic and very slightly embarrassed. You have to have both of those. I absolutely see that. And so, yeah, from here, it's Brian versus Brian, just like we saw with the, as you mentioned, previous other evil Brian Braddock who came through to our universe. And it's not going very well because, you know, Brian from 616 has been losing his powers and Hauptman England is at the height of his powers. Things continue to go badly. Evil Shadowcat, we find, is as good Shadowcat can phase through electronics and disrupt them. Ghost Shadowcat disrupts what she refers to as the electricity of life. She and Kurt together are able to apparently knock out Captain Britain and Hauptman England prepares to finish him off. You've done your part well, Nightcrawler. But to me, the leader of Lightning Force, goes the honor of administering the coup de grace. To which Captain Britain responds, I couldn't have put it better myself, while thinking, Good grief, do I really sound so pompous? And he just pows the hell out of Hauptman England, at which point Megan reveals that evil Megan is in fact good Megan, who took evil Megan out and has been disguised as her, and kicks the crap out of Kurt and Callisto and disarms Moira. It's very cathartic. Yeah, watching Nazis get beat up. Never not fun. Right? Now, Kitty, she awakens, apparently evil Kitty did not kill her, to Alistair Stewart sort of attending to her, trying to make sure that she's okay, and she is, like, immediately besotted, dorkily in love. Her crush on Alistair, and Alistair's subsequent crush on Rachel, and what I'm pretty sure is Rachel's crush on Kitty, remain one of the more benign love triangles of Excalibur. Oh, it's like the recycling triangle, where there are arrows going from each point in one direction. Yeah reduce, reuse, fanfiction. It's great. Very quickly, Widget, who, again, I love how Widget in this arc is just around and just does stuff whenever there's nothing going on. He'll just open a portal randomly. I mean, look, that is Widget's job. Widget opens a portal nearby, and Dr. Alistair Stewart, who is always distracted by anything even remotely sciencey, 
is about to walk through to meet up with the Valkyrie Amazon lady on the other side, when Kitty realizes this is not good, he might not come back, we don't need another interdimensional incident right now, phases through Widget's portal, shorting Widget out with a yow! And disrupting the portal. This is, in fact, actually where Widget gets Widget's name. Kitty refers to Widget as such. So, yeah, the fight is over. The good guys have barely won, thanks to Captain Britain and Megan really pulling through at the end, despite their decreasing powers. But this isn't just a beat-the-bad-guys kind of situation, because the fact is, Earth-616 is Moira McTaggart and Callisto and the entire crew of the train that disappeared are still in the fascist parallel universe. And so, you know, everyone's sort of negotiating in the background, and I like what this scene does, because it focuses on something that's far more emotionally resonant, which is Kitty and Kitty finally talking to each other. And Kitty is looking at her doppelganger, thinking, if we're a match, she should be barely 15. Which is weird, because Kitty is going to turn 15 at some point in this, but still. But she looks like an old woman, and her eyes, what has she seen? Death. What? Have I seen? Have I caused? Have I suffered? You know my thoughts. We are the same. How can I not know you? As you can me, if you but look. What have they done to you? What have you done to me? And Nazi Moira McTaggart, overhearing, says, It is to the child's honor, and that of her mongrel race, that her special abilities have singled her out for service to the fatherland. It's interesting that Nazi Moira McTaggart doesn't have a phonetic Scottish accent. I guess, you know, fascism doesn't account for accents. But yeah, Kitty is furious, because it's very clear that because in this fascist universe Kitty Pride was Jewish, she was basically killed and then imprisoned after death. Her ghost was imprisoned, was enslaved to the Nazis. It seems really strange to me that Megan is part of the team on Excalibur, and apparently freely so, while Kitty's in that relative position. Right, because Megan was raised by a Romani family, right? She was, and she was not in her super Aryan form when she was first found, maybe because of when she was born, like, the events of her life took place that much later. But yeah, I mean, she's Romani. That is a little weird, yeah. But for me, really, like, the emotional resonance of what Kitty's dealing with, and we've seen that as an American Jew, knowledge of the Holocaust, knowledge of what the Nazis did to the Jewish people is a big part of Kitty's background. You remember back in, I think it was, uh, Right before the trial of Magneto, when Kitty and Magneto were at the Holocaust Memorial. Where Freedom Force then captures him? They did, yeah. Super dick move. I feel like that changes your perspective as a reader, too. Like, one of the things that I think it's hard to know is the extent to which being raised Jewish in America kind of changes your ability to perceive the Nazis as goofy fantasy stock villains. Yeah, because, I mean, we both were raised, you know, we each have one Jewish parent, and so that was just always a thing. Like, I would watch The Sound of Music, and it wasn't just a rollicking adventure story. Like, the Nazi stuff was genuinely emotionally affecting. Yeah, that's a really big deal, and it's really driven home that that's where you come from, that that's your history, and that that's, you know, the specter that doesn't quite go away. And so I enjoy that Excalibur doesn't shy away from analyzing that. I mean, yes, interdimensional Nazis make for great villains, and it's, you know, a good, goofy story in that regard— But when you bring up the Nazis as villains, you're dealing with a lot of historical and psychological associations that I'm glad Claremont did not ignore. Yeah, the the portrayal of Kitty's Judaism in especially the early comics she's in is something that I really like because it rings very, very true to a sort of specific sort of mostly secular but still very intensely cultural American Judaism. It's a really good textual representation of that perspective, I think, especially for a teenager in that era. Now, to prevent Kitty from completely disrupting the negotiations, because this is still like a diplomatic thing going on, Rachel Summers takes her away, talking about her own experience as a hound in her own dark future that was oppressing mutants horribly. 
eventually they're interrupted by Kurt, who points out that, you know, a deal has been reached and they're just going to swap back. There are going to be no consequences for the Nazi lightning squad. Because Excalibur ultimately, at least in England, serves the state. They do not get to act unilaterally. Yeah. So diplomacy kind of sucks in that regard. And that's basically what's up with the Nazis. They're preparing to switch back at this point. Meanwhile, however, there's a character we haven't seen in a while, and that is banker douchebag Nigel Frobisher. Nigel Frobisher works for Courtney Ross, and he does not like her. He admires her, but he wants her. He wants her power, and he really, really doesn't respect her. We meet him at the Hellfire Club. He's gotten in with a bunch of other younger men as a guest of a member, and he runs into Courtney Ross there, and goddamn does she play him like a flute. Now remember, this is not, in fact, the real Courtney Ross. This is Satire 9 impersonating Courtney Ross, and she's so gloriously sinister and creepy and evil. Well, she's super creepy in that she actually has the power to act on it. Nigel is maybe just as bad, but in a relatively vulnerable position, at least at the Hellfire Club. But Courtney Ross challenges him to a card game, and basically says, hey, let's make a deal. We'll just cut the deck. Whoever gets the high card wins. Every win you get, you get a promotion. But if I win, you lose everything. Are you in or not? Nigel, of course, is totally full of himself, and Courtney's really playing to, you know, his sense of self-importance, so of course he accepts. You know, the first thing she does is, as an apology for something that had happened earlier, she says, you stake your bet at a pound, I'll give you anything you want. You get to name my stake. He says, a weekend with you. She's like, all right, that's fine. And so it builds up and up and up until he's about to win the company from her. And his official stake at this point is one million pounds because it's increasing by tenfold every time. And that's when he loses and basically becomes a slave to Satire 9. And the next time we see him, he is freaking out because he was supposed to show up at Courtney. Well, he thinks Courtney Ross's office at 9 a.m. He's going to be late. When he gets there, the way I don't know, Courtney Ross was always described as an ice queen and we never saw that with her. But that persona totally works for the way Satire 9 is impersonating her, and Nigel is terrified of her. She gives him an assignment, which is to contact Gatecrasher because she's got a mission for TechNet. She also clamps a Satire 9 dagger logo earring onto him, which is going to be kind of, you know, our continual reminder that he's working for her. Well, her security staff is wearing Satire 9's logo now, too. So, yeah, that'll definitely come back to hit us a lot later. But in the meantime, Excalibur, of course, is back at the lighthouse after their Nazi adventure. And specifically, Kitty and Rachel come back to discover Ilyana's soul sword has lodged itself in a rock outside the lighthouse. Yeah, and Kitty remembers, of course, that when the soul sword has appeared before, it's when Ilyana was either powerless or dead. So this is just yet another twist of the knife, or I guess the soul sword, if you will, for her. And she doesn't want to touch it. She doesn't know what'll happen if she does. And so Phoenix, as her friend, as her roommate, open quote, close quote, Tries to do so with the Phoenix Force. Yeah, no, this page involves the least subtle euphemistic use of the word roommate I have ever seen in my life. Now, at this point, still very early in the Kitty Pride Rachel Summers dynamic. So the incredible amounts of subtext, the incredible amounts of meaning beneath the surface that Chris Claremont clearly intended to be here and confirmed in episode number 100 of our show. I'm never going to get over that. You know, not a lot of it is evident, but Rachel certainly is incredibly dedicated to Kitty. Are you kidding? It's so evident. I mean, the extent to which, like, this page and every time Rachel talks about them is they're just gal pals, palling around, doing pal stuff like gals together. (laughs) Like, this is, these are specifically the terms that are used to caption pictures of women making out. Have we been looking at different pictures? I mean, I'm on Twitter, so occasionally I see retweeted celebrity stuff. Okay, okay. But yeah, like... Rachel's language and a lot of Kitty's language around Ileana is so heavily coded. I'll buy that. 
But regardless, the Phoenix Force is actually unable to pull the sword out, leaving it to stay there for the Sega Genesis X-Men game that I used to play all the time in the beginning of the Lighthouse level. Wait, I thought you were a Nintendo kid. Well, I, I, I was, but, you know, some of my friends had Genesis's. Genesis? Genesis? but not Genocide. Shout out to Sam Keeley. That was a great game. Except for that one part where you got to the Mojoverse and you actually had to reset your Genesis to continue on and none of us ever figured out how to do that and there was really no web to speak of at the time and it was terrible. Oh, that's hilarious. It's like the Metal Gear Solid thing where you have to switch controller ports. Yeah, but at a time when there was no precedent. So uh, anyway, yeah, and that's actually going to stay there for a while until it becomes the focus of a Warren Ellis arc many, many years in the future. Alistair Stewart shows up a little bit later, only to be greeted by Rachel Summers wearing a tiny red leather dress, fishnets, thigh-high boots, and fishnet sleeves. Rachel, not Alistair. Alistair is wearing these things. I mean, they both look pretty good in it, it's true. And Alistair is, as we alluded to before, besotted with Rachel, despite the fact that Kitty's besotted with him. So she's just hanging around at home in this stuff? I mean, that's my assumption. I guess if you're telekinetic, like, you can change molecules of anything, and maybe that's just as comfy as, like, a bathrobe and fuzzy slippers. I do like the theory that all telepaths are dressed in pajamas all the time. <laughs> yes. And he comes in, and they meet up with Kitty Pride. And this dynamic, the three of them, is one of my favorite things. Yes, it's a love triangle, but they also just get along so well. So, like, at one point, Kitty's talking about, you know, given that there's still a hole in the ceiling from where Rachel burst through, that superheroes seem to be really good at destroying their own surroundings. To which Alistair responds, Just consider yourselves the living embodiments of chaos theory. And Kitty rejoins, Fractaling our way to fun and glory, huh? To which Rachel concludes, Mandelbro set game and match. They're so charming. Like, I just want to have them be part of a sitcom and part of a polyamorous relationship because the triangles are dumb and they should all just make it work. Maybe when Kitty gets a little older. That's true. She is a teenager still. Because that is something worth pointing out with both of these dynamics. And I think I'm willing to forgive this a little further with Rachel just because so much of her life has been so profoundly disrupted that I tend to default to thinking of her as a teenager. She is still very young at this point. It's true. Well, she's about the same age as Colossus, I think, which is, you know, a relationship we called out as an age disparity. It interests me that my default response to these is so different. I mean, I think gender is definitely a factor in how I look at those power dynamics, which is weird. I think a bigger factor is actually art, Hmm. that visually Kitty and Rachel read to me as roughly the same age. Peter tends to be aged up disproportionately in the way he's drawn. He doesn't really look like a 19-year-old. And I should qualify that this is no excuse in real life, but it affects the way I, you know, viscerally react to and read these relationships between fictional characters who are primarily drawn by artists who exaggerate in a lot of very specific directions and writers who tend to forget characters' relative ages. Now, Kitty remains immensely frustrated that Alistair Stewart only has eyes for Rachel when she's got a giant crush on him, and she's thinking, okay, what's wrong with me? What does Rachel have that I don't? Or what does Rachel not have that I don't? And that was my double negative, not hers. And so she just tries on a bunch of different clothing. She tries on a bunch of Rachel's clothing and eventually just gets frustrated and phases out of all of it, sending it flying. So for those of you at home, take a drink. Oh, we forgot to tell them to when uh, Captain Britain's Red Jammies got destroyed, which happened in the fight with Hobbiton in England. So take a ketchup drink, too. Yes, yes, indeed. And before she realizes what's going on, Kitty suddenly finds herself in an interdimensional court with an alternate animalistic-looking version of Excalibur and a bunch of weird aliens. Stark naked. Her, not the aliens. And her first thought isn't, oh shit, this is a nightmare, I'm naked in the middle of an alien court. It's, aliens, first contact, I should be polite. So she immediately just extends a hand and tells them, hi, I'm Kitty Pride." At which point she materializes out of that dimension back into ours in front of Rachel Summers and Alistair Stewart, and Rachel says, We know who you are, kiddo. And Kitty goes bright red and phases through the floor, and this exchange right here is actually one of the ones that stuck with me from my Excalibur read from way back in the day, as Alistair says, Rachel, did we... 
Just see what I <clears throat> think we saw. Nope. Well, thank heaven for that. Rachel's a good bro. <laughs> she is. It's so wonderful. And we wrap up back at the train station because Excalibur's been called there for the transportation back, the swap back of the Nazi train and our train. Preceded briefly by a bait and switch in which evil Kurt Wagner attempts to teleport in and rape Brigadier Allison Stewart, who turns out to be Megan in disguise and punches him through two walls. And I'm of two minds on that scene because you're really playing with fire when you bring a rape scene into a story. Like, you want to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and not just for shock value. And what I like here is Nightcrawler's reaction to it, like real Nightcrawler seeing what his alternate universe self tried to do, because this is a cruel and twisted version of the kind of lighthearted swashbuckling stunt I myself might have tried. Specifically, the difference between good Nightcrawler and evil Nightcrawler is the difference between being an Errol Flynn character and being Errol Flynn. And I do enjoy that the fineness of that line between like, you know, being suave and sexy and crossing that line and actually, you know, sexually assaulting somebody or even simply making somebody extremely uncomfortable. I like that Kurt looks at that. I like that Kurt sees that his behavior is only just barely on the side of okay sometimes. We've talked about Kurt and how he is a really good model for being a nice guy without the TM. And I think this is a really good example of it. Like, he is the guy who sees and enjoys the romantic tropes of movies, but also recognizes that they don't play out in real life. And he recognizes the difference between where those lines exist and can exist ethically in fiction and reality. He's such a cool dude. Kurt Wagner is such a cool dude. He's one of my very favorite characters. So, yes, we are at the train station. The situation with evil Nightcrawler being horribly rapey and just a terrible person has been as resolved as it's going to get. And the swap's about to happen when Lockheed, who's come along with Excalibur, freaks out and flies over to the locomotive. Rachel senses that there's a distressed psyche in there. And so Alistair does what Alistair does, which is to say, Oh, I'll flip the switch that turns the frame of the locomotive invisible? Because, of course, Alistair Stewart has something like that. And what that reveals is that there's a giant fuck-all purple dragon inside the locomotive. That's where the train gets its power from. This brings up a number of questions, the first of which is why the hell did Alistair not use that switch before? Well, my guess is he must have done so because he knew where it was, so maybe he just didn't think to bring up that there was a dragon inside? Alistair Stewart works in mysterious ways, man. I guess when you're a member of the Weird Happenings organization, it's really hard to prioritize which of the weird things you should bring up first. Yeah, your scale is sort of warped at that point. So he's like, you know, okay, so they need to deal with the alternate universe Nazis, the weird magic stuff that's mentioned offhand that their Reich is all about the magic as well as the science stuff, and, you know, the train swap, and I've got 600 other things on my plate and tons of paperwork, and I still haven't finished this damn banana. Dragons, yeah, it's screwed. It's just Tuesday. And so Excalibur does convince the Nazis that they should leave the train because the spell isn't very good at teleporting more than a handful of people. Well, the dragon- and because the dragon has at this point officially requested diplomatic refugee status. And everything looks like it's going to be okay until Nazi warrior McTaggart throws a nuclear grenade back through the portal as the swap completes. Widget freaks out as Rachel Summers tries to block the grenade with the Phoenix Force, and the whole train with Excalibur and Alistair Stewart inside it disappears with a sudden thump. And it's time for the cross-time motherfucking caper. Yeah, which is a storyline which, uh, it's got a reputation as going on for too long, but honestly, it's been years since I've read it. I freaking love it. It's just so delightfully weird. And that's basically where we leave off. This is the last Claremont-written non-cross-time caper arc, I believe. And I love it. It's a lot of fun. It's beautiful. You know what else is beautiful, listeners? You. And you have questions. An anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, Have you ever read a comic that was published in the 80s or 90s and thought this would never be allowed today? I'm thinking specifically of Psylocke, because I can't help but wonder if her changing races would have raised some hackles had it been done today. 
So this brings up a great point, which is one that I love to harp on on Twitter. But if you don't follow me there, you may not have heard this rant yet. Okay, to answer the basic question, I can't think of any plot points from the 80s or 90s that wouldn't be published today. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of mistakes of that era that I haven't seen repeated much, much more recently. And given the creator and publisher end of some of the conversations around those, it's a little frustrating how much, even as things change, they kind of stay the same. On the other hand, I think your question brings up a really important point of disambiguation, and that's between content creation and response to that content. Because while I think those same stories are being told, I think the conversation around them has changed a lot. I think that, yeah, they are generating a lot more pushback. Some of that is a matter of volume. More, I think, is a matter of a change in platform. Because we have a generation of readers today who are very, very informed and very engaged in critical dialogue, you know, more and less constructively variably, but who also have a huge amount of access to a common platform. You know, social media and the internet have given them a place both, you know, to centralize that conversation, which before would have been scattered between letter columns, fanzines, news groups, physical correspondence, all of that stuff, but not really happening in one solid place. And to do it in a place where they have direct access to and dialogue with the creators and publishers in question which changes the subsequent dynamics. So I don't think stuff has changed as much on the publishing end, but I think while the content has remained the same, the conversation really has changed and shifted. And it's been really interesting to see that develop and to continue to see it develop since this is still a relatively new state in medium and evolving very quickly. Kira Gecko asks via email, most characters' powers seem to creep slowly stronger. Do you find it interesting that Jubilees went the opposite direction from blowing up buildings to barely inconveniencing foes? So power creep, which I agree is definitely a thing in comics, role-playing games, movies, fiction of any sort, that tends to happen for both story-relevant reasons and also based on a character's role on the team. Now, sometimes you have a character like Wolverine, where his healing factor just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it fully disappears. Other times you have a character like, say, Emma Frost, who was given her secondary mutation of a diamond form because Grant Morrison was writing the X-Men, couldn't get a hold of Colossus when he was dead, and needed a bruiser. So, you know, both organic and story-based reasons. Now, with Jubilee, after having her sort of heyday in Generation X, when a lot of that stuff was really examined, after that she was a much more secondary character, and I think people went back to the default, which was how people remembered her from the 90s, as having the little PATH-based firework powers like that were in the animated series and in 90s comics. I think that's a shame, but I think really it's just an artifact of what's even more of a shame, which is Jubilee taking a backseat from the much more expanded role and much deeper writing that she'd seen back in Gen X. So we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that comes with that support is thanks from fictional characters and or forces for patrons of a certain level. So I'm going to turn it over for the first time in a long time to the angry Claremontian narrator. <sighs> well, Christopher McKenzie, you got your wish to join the big leagues, only to learn that the higher the pedestal, the harder the pratfall. Hope you survive the experience, kid, because Brad Smith's hovering in the wings, ready to step in and take your place the moment you show weakness. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, video reviews of current X titles, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. We'll be back next week to talk capers, heists, raging Cajuns, and what the V really stands for, as writer Ben Acker joins us to discuss Deadpool v. Gambit. Deadpool v. Gambit